Subversive is what we're calling this series on the parables, and uh, we're just doing a few weeks on them, and so we don't get to tackle all the parables of Jesus by any means. There's a lot of them, but hopefully this little series can kind of whet your appetite a little bit for, for the teaching of Jesus and for the parables in particular. These are unique kind of strange stories. Some business people came up to me last Sunday after church and were like, that was not a good business model of hiring employees throughout the day and then paying them the same wage at the end of the day. I, that wasn't going to work. And uh, so strange stories, um, stories that are meant to challenge conventional thinking and to undercut authority and to be just what we're calling this, this series subversive. They weren't, they weren't little, just get out of your mind that, this, that the parables were little, you know, nice stories with a, with a happy ending or, or little morals to be told or even, even stories to drive home a, a point that Jesus wanted to make. They were stories that were told that Jesus was hoping that maybe there'd be an initial reaction and then as we'll see even today, a, a later reaction, and maybe one like an hour later where people would hear, think about that story they just heard and think, wait a second, he was talking about me. And uh, so here's Jesus telling these amazing stories uh, through the parables. They weren't safe, both for the ones who heard them and for the one who told them. But how grateful we are for these stories. So let's read another one today. It's from the Gospel of Matthew Love to have you turn there with me in your Bible, if you can. It's Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Let's stand up, can we, as I read this? Matthew 21, 33 to 46, to the end of that chapter. And at the end, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him. But the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. And Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected 
has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. And when the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I'm telling you, subversive. Well, it was the beginning of my sophomore year, and if you've heard this story, bear with me, but it just bears repeating. It was the beginning of my sophomore year in college, and I had taken notice of a new young lady on campus. The freshman girls had arrived, and uh, I had my eye out, evidently, but uh, she was a bit elusive at first. She's in children's church this morning, so she's not hearing this story. She was a bit elusive at first, um, hard to find out much information on as I tried to do my due diligence, you know, my research. Um, But slowly and surely, as I talked to those who knew her and my friends talked to her friends, and you kind of know how that game is played perhaps, and I observed her from a distance, I began to get a little bit of a sense as to who this girl was. I learned that her name was Kyla. Oh, say it with me slowly, Kyla. And I mean, the stars were just floating above my head. And it was, and then I, I happened to sit at a table and happened to sit at a table in the cafeteria near her table. And I heard her voice. Oh, that voice. And my heart was beating faster and faster. And I remember um, just these moments of being around her and uh, kind of from a distance. But uh, I, I knew that this was someone that I wanted to get to know a little bit better. So what I, I did what any you know, smart guy would do. I had my friend invite her friend to uh, an activity. And so after a Friday night event there on the campus at Point Loma, we invited her friends and her to ice cream. And I'll never forget the evening because we all took our separate cars and all the guys in a few cars and all the ladies in a few cars And we got there, and I stood, I got out of my car, and I stood there looking at the other cars that the girls were getting out of and waiting for her to get out of the car as well. And out they got, one after another. It was like a clown car. I just, I don't know how many girls were in that car, but none of them were Kyla. And one after another until the the door slammed, and I thought to myself, wait, there has to be one more in that car. But... Alas, there was not, and so the ice cream social was not that exciting for me that night. Uh, Everybody else seemed to have a good time, and that was good, but the plan was foiled. Uh, Kyla had sensed a setup, and uh, she didn't know with who yet, but um, she'd sensed a setup, and so she decided to call it an early night, and uh, oh, just kept me uh, awaiting. So uh, we, we decided not to be... Uh, too discouraged by that, and uh, maybe a week later, we decided to set up another group outing. This time, we were going to go to uh, 
to uh, some, like a double feature, some movies out in Claremont. If you're familiar with San Diego at all, there was a discount theater that we went to quite a bit. And uh, it was a double feature, and I was going to, I had a conflict, a class or practice or something, so I couldn't get there till later, uh, about halfway through the first movie. But when I got there, my, my wingman had done an amazingly great job of setting the stage for me. Uh, um, I don't know, there were probably 10 to 15 people there from our group, and in the section we were at, there was only one empty seat. And it was on the aisle, and it was right next to Kyla. I mean, they had, I, don't, I still don't know this day, I need to find out how they did that, but it was good. So I sat, I just, oh, I guess I'll sit here, and uh, slid into my chair, and uh, what a, what a, I have no idea what the movie was, I don't remember at all. But um, just, you know, those casual, like, accidental elbow bumps at the armrest, and, uh, and just hearing her laugh, I mean, those were special, special moments. And it was a great evening. Everything was moving in a, in a positive direction, it seemed like to me anyway, uh, until intermission. It was a double feature, remember, two movies, and so in between movies, they turned the lights on, everyone got up, go get some popcorn or... You know, we're college students, so we just scraped popcorn off the carpet, you know. And, and, uh, um, but, but, you know, a little bit of a break. And when I returned back into the theater to, again, take my seat with the casual elbow bumps and everything, Kyla had moved seats. She had embedded herself deeply within a group of girls, untouchable, unreachable, hard to get. And I think the, the setup was uh, appearing to her in vivid colors in, uh, in those moments. And so I remember that night just uh, after the movies driving home and saying, guys, really good effort. Appreciate all the work that you've done on my behalf. I think it's probably time we all move on. Uh, and so we did, kind of, but I think my friends could still tell it was a little troubling to me. So they worked on my behalf. We went out again the next week, a big group of us, or sometime in the next couple of weeks, and we went to Denny's for a piece of pie. I don't know, college kids don't do this stuff anymore, but we went to Denny's for a piece of pie. And I just remember on the way home, my roommate kind of worked it out so that he could, he and I could give Kyla and her roommate a ride back to campus. I still don't know how he did this. This guy, I owe him so much. But, um, the other thing I remember about that ride is that he, he somehow got into the conversation uh, at least 10 times the fact that I was on the varsity basketball team. It was great. It was like, so did you girls know that James plays basketball? Yeah. He's on the, did I mention he's on the varsity basketball team? I'm like, Doug, it's okay, man. It's all right. Anyway, nothing really transpired from that. I thought it was, you know, three strikes and you're out is kind of what I thought. Uh, between these different events and and extensions uh, to Kyla. So I was sort of beginning to kind of wonder what might happen of all this until one night in the dorm room, in the dormitory, and I was actually outside of my room and down the hallway in another friend's room just kind of hanging out. And I remember Doug, my roommate, just coming, running down the hall, and he peeks his head to that room where I was, and he said, James, you got a phone call. And this is back in the days before, you know, cell phones. This is a landline, so I had to run back to my room to, uh, 
to pick up the phone, and as I picked up the phone, I looked over at him, I said, hello, and I looked over at my friend Doug, and he said, it's Kyla, I called her. How good is that? And her roommate had answered the phone as well and had gone to get Kyla. And when I said hello, it was about the same time that she picked up the phone to say hello. And suddenly I was confronted with a reality that I had not expected. And I scrambled. I have no idea what I said for about two or three minutes there. I scrambled awkwardly. I didn't admit that it was a setup. I remember taking full credit for making the phone call. And we talked and we talked. And about 45 minutes later, we decided that we should go out, just the two of us, on a date. And uh, I guess the rest, as they say, is history in, in a sense. And uh, she still, I think, senses a setup anytime I come around. <laughs> But I tell that story because I, I, it's, it's just a great memory for me, obviously. But it's, uh, it's a story about my own sense of the relentless pursuit of someone. And here was a gal that had captured my attention, who had, had uh, captivated my interests, and who, regardless of what kind of pushback or rejection may have been offered in my direction, one that I felt like pursuing. And I just believe that I looked, as I read this story again and again this week, this parable that we've looked at, and we'll look at a little more deeply for a few moments this morning, that over and over what comes out to me is this, is this picture of a God who just won't be told no. <laughs> who just in the face of rejection and rebellion continues to extend himself and reach himself out to his creation. What an amazing story it is that we've looked at here. Uh, it's a, uh, like our parable from last week, it's a, it's a story that starts with a landowner. <laughs> this must have been familiar ground for Jesus and the people of that day. It starts with a landowner, but instead of a landowner who uh, went out and hired workers throughout the day and brought them in to, be, to, to work for him and then paid them the same wage at the end of the day. Here's a landowner who, if you noticed, carefully prepares and constructs, passionately uh, cares for this vineyard that he has created at the very beginning of the parable. There's eight action verbs in that first verse that we read, verse 33. Eight action, verse, or eight, eight action words, and most of them, at least half of them, are action words about what kind of care the landowner was giving to the vineyard. This landowner cared about this vineyard. It wasn't just a casual, you know, I just happen to have a vineyard, now I'm going to leave and somebody take care of it. He cared deeply for this vineyard. But then he Instead of staying and monitoring, he, he left. He moved away, and, and in his place, he hired farmers to come in and to take care of the vineyard and to harvest the vineyard and to work it and to, to be responsible for it. It wasn't that he was distant or disinterested, at least emotionally. 
In fact, to be very uh, honest, he was more attentive than ever to its production and to what was due him. And we see that because when it was time, the right time, he sent his servants. He sent those to, to gather the harvest. Now, listeners to Jesus, in, as he told this story, and early readers of the Gospel of Matthew would have recognized right away as Jesus began to tell this story that not only was it a parable, but it was an allegory, an allegorical parable, if we want to say the, the long word for it. But it was an allegory. Many of you know what that means, but technically an allegory just simply means that each major element in the story had a direct representation of or was a symbol for something in the culture of that day, in the world of that day. So the landowner was something, the vineyard was something, the, the farmers were something, the servants equated to something. And, and the, the listeners to Jesus early on and the readers of Matthew's gospel would have known right from the start, actually, as Jesus began to tell this story, who was who and what was what. For those who knew the scriptures, which was most of these, they would have known that the landowner was God. The landowner, that's an easy one, right? We're like, hey, I got that one too. Uh, the landowner was God. Here was one who carefully prepared and, and, and cared for his vineyard. And those who had read the, God, the, the prophet Isaiah would have known from Isaiah chapter 5, where Isaiah writes of the vineyard as being Israel, the people of God. They would have known when, when Jesus began to speak of the vineyard, he was speaking of the nation of Israel, the people of God, the ancient people of God. The listeners and the readers would have made these connections. God, the landowner, Israel, the vineyard. But what happened next was just a really thinly veiled summary of God's relationship and the Christian story of God's relationship with Israel. The tenants, the farmers of the vineyard, those responsible for the, the harvest, the, the, the readers later would have known, obviously, in the moment they didn't recognize, but were the authorities, the religious leaders in that, in that day, entrusted by God to, to lead Israel to fruitful obedience, but they were failing to do so. And the servants that God sent again and again, who were rejected and who uh, were killed and were stoned. And, and one commentator says the fact that he sent two delegations actually suggests perhaps that this was just a common theme that would have been carried out over and over and over. And each time the, the farmers rebelled against the overture of the landowner through the servants and rejected and killed them until finally, and those, I need to make that connection, the, 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 the servants, the, the people would have known as the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament who came to the nation of Israel over and over with the, with the good news of God, calling them back to, to relationship with Him. And then finally, Jesus says, this landowner sent not another delegation of servants or messengers, but he sent his son. Surely they won't kill my son as well. And yet that's exactly what they did. And Jesus speaking this parable, in a sense foreshadowing, not in a sense, but in a very clear reality, foreshadowing what in fact would happen uh, to him. 
the son's owner, rejected and killed as well. It's a really interesting scene, and we're not going to get too deeply into it right now, but that little conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders that follows this is pretty powerful. He turns to his listeners, those religious leaders gathered right there before him, and says, you know, what will this vineyard owner do to these people? What do you think? You know, what, what's, your, what's your best guess as to how he'll react to these, these farmers who killed his servants and, and rejected his overtures? What will they do? And, and of course, the religious leaders say, he'll, he'll wipe them out. He'll wipe them out, and he'll give that vineyard to somebody else who will, who will bear the fruit that he is required of them. And Jesus cites Psalm 118 actually there, talking about this rejected stone that had become the cornerstone, talking about himself again, this one who was the rejected one, but who would become the the, the essence, the, the heartbeat of this faith. And he proclaims that the kingdom, that is that, that vineyard of God, will be taken from them be taken from them, these who had been given its custody and given to a people that would produce the fruit of the kingdom. And it dawns on the religious leaders in that moment that he's, he's really talking about us when he tells this story. And it's not a good story. And they want to kill him, but they can't, as we read, because the people were seeing Jesus as a prophet. At, at a very basic level, we need to just kind of understand the background of that story so we can understand. It's a little, maybe, I hate to make one of Jesus' parables dry, but it's a little bit dry to wade through some of the, the mechanics or the allegory of that story, but it's important for us to get through it to be able to see how this relates and how it was heard in that early day in those, to those first hearers. Because at a very basic level, this is a story about God's relationship to Israel the ancient people of God. And it's a story about the disobedience of the ancient people of God, especially their leaders. And it's a story about the consequent turn of God from that ancient nation of Israel to a new nation, to the people of God, those who would follow after uh, Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles in that day. At the basic level, it's this very contextual story. But at a much grander level, this story still speaks to us currently in some ways that we really need to, I think, grab onto today. There's some larger categories in play as we hear this story. And and the, the very initial category is just this reminder that this is no longer just a story about God's relationship to Israel, but it's a story about God's relationship to His creation. And to all people everywhere. And and, and as I read that beginning of the description of God caring for his vineyard, in a sense, in my mind, I expanded that beyond just how he cared for the nation of Israel, but really how he cares for all of creation. And if you look at the care with which went into the, the construction of this vineyard, you can even connect it back to Genesis as we heard about God creating and and bringing humanity into existence. And the great care with which he, he demonstrated as he brought people into, into being. Here's a God who, who longs for relationship with his creation. 
Here's a story about a God who, who, who will not be denied in the extension of himself towards relationship with all of his creation. Just like I pursued my to-be wife at a much deeper level, God pursues his people. Just like God has pursued Nate, just like God has pursued so many, all of us, and is in the process of that. This story reminds us that God is in the, the, the business of relentlessly pursuing after his creation. That, that means a lot to us, people. It means a lot to us because, again, here's a picture of a God who, who doesn't give up on us. And I don't know where you are this morning in your own life, but it's important for each of us to hear and to know either for this current moment or for moments that are yet to come that God doesn't give up on you. The landowner sent the first round of servants. They killed them, rejected them. The landowner, it, it almost seems, the, Jesus tells a story that it was almost the natural thing for him to do, to send another round of servants to collect the harvest. If you had sent two rounds of servants to collect and each of them had been killed brutally, what would you have done? We wouldn't have sent another round. We would have sent the army. <laughs> we wouldn't have sent another round. We would have sent those to stand up. We wouldn't have sent another round, and for sure, we wouldn't have sent our son. But this God who is revealed in this story to be one who relentlessly pursues his creation not only does so through the giving of the prophets, not only does through, so through the giving of, of the story of his relationship with Israel, he does so in history through the giving of his very son, Jesus, to come and to give of himself, to live and to die and to be raised again. At the last, he sent his son. And we can know that the Father sends His Son even today. We can know that God is pursuing us. Love how Nate talked about our friend Dave. And, and I just want all of us to pay very close attention to that reality, that, that one of the key ways that God pursues us is through other people. God, God in our day pursues us through His Word without a doubt. Sometimes... The Bible can just come alive or somebody can share a verse or, or we can speak a word. And I heard a testimony recently about somebody reading a gospel uh, account in, in a Bible they had picked up and becoming a Christian, becoming captivated by this Jesus and becoming a follower of his. Undoubtedly, God can speak to us through the scriptures. Undoubtedly, God speaks to us through, through the church, through, through the ministry of, of, of the church and those who come around us. Undoubtedly, God speaks through people who he will have to intersect our lives at certain times and to, to connect with us in such a way that he brings us back. God is reaching to us. But we need to know that though he reached to us by his son many, many years ago, he still reaches to us by his son even now through the presence of his Holy Spirit. Just a reminder to us 
that wherever we may find ourselves in our wanderings, in our, in our rebellion or moments or seasons of rejection, that the Holy Spirit of God is always pursuing us. I told you about a young man I got to chat with a few weeks ago who tried to explain to me how he became a Christian, a college student, and, and he really couldn't quite pinpoint all the things that went to work, and he just said, God was after me, I think. And in a beautiful sense, we can hold on to that reality that God is seeking after us. And that's really good news, friends, because the second reality that this passage brings to us is the fact that our world is filled with broken and rebellious people. We see them here in the religious leaders, but the category is so much bigger than the Jewish leaders of this day. The category is expanding across humanity and across history. Our world and history is filled with broken and rebellious people. How do we know that? Well, because we've lived it this week. We've read it in the newspapers. We've seen it online. We've We've encountered the brokenness and the rebellion of people, not only in the news, but we've encountered it in the people around us, the people that we bumped up against and the people that have been hurtful perhaps to us, the people that we know that are, that are perhaps close to us who are, or who are perhaps very far from us, but we see in them the brokenness and rebelliousness of people. I... I I'm coaching freshman boys basketball again this year and have already started to uh, be um, encouraged by that activity. And uh, I'm just reminded, though, last year as we went through that season, and some of you remember me sharing several stories about these boys as I was trying to get used to hanging out with, you know, 14-year-olds every day and try to get them to do something that I wanted them to do that they necessarily didn't want to do. And I just remember one day in practice speaking to my assistant coach and saying to them, him, in a moment, after I'd been pretty frustrated, I think, I said, Coach, I I just, we just need to remember that these, these kids aren't being the way they're being because they're bad kids. I, as I was reminding him, I was really, of course, reminding myself, they're not being like the way they're being because they're bad kids. It's, It's not that they're mean. It's not that they want to do whatever we don't want them to and don't want to do whatever we want them to. It's just that they don't know. And so along with our our motivational skill and our strategic uh, abilities, we need to remember that we are teachers as well. And as I think about those kids on my team, I think about the majority of people that are in this world. It's not that folks are, I mean, there is an inherent evil, absolutely, But it's not that folks are wanting necessarily to be bad. It's not that folks are necessarily, for the most part, wanting to hurt others. It's just that they they don't know. And I can even look at the the folks in Jesus' story, the religious leaders and how they responded. And and even to the the farmers who reacted to the messengers coming their way. They wanted it all for themselves. There's a selfishness that creeps in. A self-centeredness, a desire for self-rule that creeps in. And we know this because we see it all around us. But we also know this, friends, because we are broken 
and rebellious people. <laughs> Let's just be honest. We don't have to look far. We don't have to look far at all. You look in the mirror. We can look right at ourselves and know that we are those people who have allowed self-centeredness to creep in. We are those people who have been tempted by self-rule, grabbing it all for ourselves. Here comes the air. They had no chance. The owner would have come in anyway. They had no chance, but they thought they did. Here comes the air. Let's kill him, and we'll grab it all for ourselves. And sometimes we're still like that, my friends. And we don't have to look far. We can look right at ourselves. The world is being sought after by God. His creation is something that he longs for. He's relentlessly pursuing, and that's good news because we're a world in need of his touch. We're a world that's filled with broken and rebellious people. But the last reality of this is that, is that when God pursues, and this is sort of the, the catch of this, this story, because it would be nice to say, actually, that, that God pursues us, loves us, and then we can just kind of do whatever we want with that. And, uh, you know, we can just continue to shake our fist at him. We can just go whatever way we want to, and he'll just keep pursuing us. And in a sense, he will absolutely. But in another sense that this story makes very clear is that there comes a moment and there comes a time when God begins to look for fruit to be born in our lives. He's looking, ultimately, his search is not just generally for for people. His search is for those who will respond to his pursuit of them and respond to his grace by a life of allegiance and with a life of obedience, with a life of bearing fruit of relationship to him. God longs not just to always be the chaser, but to be the one who is living in relationship with his people. A long time ago, we, uh, we uh, put some new plants, many of you remember this, in the backyard at the parsonage where we live and some new landscaping and it's just beautiful. And we plan, you got to come over. Just show up someday. We'll let you in. And, uh, or we'll just tell you to walk around back and take a look. I, I don't know. It'll be one of those, depending on the day. Um, but just come take a look, and uh, we'll have our blinds drawn. But um, come take a look. And, and we planted uh, a lemon tree and an orange tree among these other wonderful trees and plants and beautiful things. But it wasn't long, unfortunately, before the orange tree died. And uh, it just got really dry and brown, and I, I'm sure it was my fault, <laughs> but uh, I don't know what we did or didn't do necessarily to help that orange tree to grow. The lemon tree, on the other hand, some of you have gotten lemons from that tree, it, it continues to thrive. More lemons than we know what to do with. But the orange tree just died. And, and one time somebody was over with us looking at the tree, and we were saying, you know, is there any hope for it? And they just reached over and just snapped it off at its, at its, at its base. And we were like, okay, I guess the orange tree is done. Uh, that was nice. Nice knowing you, orange tree. Surprisingly, a, a number of months later, a, a little shoot began to come up from where that orange tree had been broken off. And we were like, what's going on there? Is that the orange tree or something else? And it began to grow and 
we were like, well, should we break it? Or, I mean, that's what the other guy did. And, no, we just let it grow. And so it began to grow. And it looked like an orange tree. And it, it kind of, you know, appeared to be like it was getting to the place where maybe, just maybe, some oranges might start to actually appear. But no oranges appeared. We asked Jeremy Seneft to explain this, the bio, biology people, one of the biology people among us, and he did. And uh, I have no idea really what he said to me. <laughs> A lot of times I stand up here and act like I know about stuff that I really don't know about, but this time I'm not even going to try. But there was a biological, scientific reason, and some of you probably know it in the room, as to why that tree grew back, but as to why it grew back unable to bear fruit. But that's what we have had, and that's what we have in our backyard, a nice tree that's green and reminds you of an orange tree. But there's no oranges. There's no fruit. It's not really a tree that's an orange tree, ultimately. And I think that's what this story is kind of getting at, what Jesus wants to get at in this story. That God is a God who's relentlessly pursuing his creation, loves so deeply all those he has created, carefully constructed this world in such a way to be in relationship with it, and yet... This world has rebelled. This world is broken by sin. This world is in such deep need. And so this one who pursues, even to the point of sending his son, has done so so that that broken and world who has rebelled against him might have a way to come back into relationship and live in that relationship with him. And as a part of that, Jesus just says, I, there, there's something that I ask for from you as well, and that's that you would live a life that bears fruit. It's not enough, God would say, to meet us right where we are. He does that. But God wants not only to meet us where we are, but to take us to where he wants us to be and to move us into a new place of allegiance, of obedience, of relationship with him. Some of us are there. Some of us are in a place of just walking day by day in relationship with with our creator, this one who he just hasn't given up on us and how grateful we are for that reality today. Others of us are maybe in a season of, of brokenness, a season of rejection, rebellion, where we're sort of going our own way. And that is just a reality that creeps into us sometimes when we're aware of it and other times when we're not even aware of it. But this God who pursues us calls us to a life of obedience with him. And not only does he call us to that, but he desires to give us the resources to live into that life. Let's see ourselves right there, can we? I'm going to invite our worship team to come on up. And uh, we're going to sing in response to this today. And as we do, again, just find your place in the story where it is that Jesus is, which category it is that Jesus might be uh, speaking to you in, which category you would find yourself in, someone who is in that moment of
pushing away, someone who's in that moment of, of receiving in a new way. And let's let this God who loves us so deeply pursue us in new and fresh ways, even here this morning. Let's sing together. Can we stand?